Hi, Grace Point. It is so good to see you. We're so glad you're here today. Um, this has been another really hard week. As I'm sure most of you, maybe all of you, have been following the news this week. Um, we've had more police killings of black men, re really young black men, this week while we're in the middle of the George Floyd trial. Um, from last summer, we now have uh, Dante Wright, who was killed by police this past, uh, I think, Monday. And then body cam uh, footage came out of Adam Toledo, who was 13-year-old in Chicago, who was shot and killed by police um, at the end of March. Um, on top of that, just a couple days ago, we had a mass shooting in Indianapolis. And it probably seems like I'm having trouble catching my breath because I am. This has been... Um, it has been such, uh, just such a such whiplash again and again and again. These things keep happening. We are beginning to emerge from a global health crisis, from a pandemic, but we are nowhere near emerging from the pandemic of white supremacy and racism that we are uh, have been pl are plagued with in this country. We're nowhere near coming out of the pandemic of gun violence and the worship of violence and the worship of guns. Um, the, the patron deity for many people in this country is uh, the NRA and their scripture is the Second Amendment. And it's just too, it's gone too far. Any of it was too far. But today, uh, we're actually going to continue our series, Bible Stories for Grownups. And the story we're going to look at today, I actually, I think we'll have um, some things to say. I want to come back to this, to everything that's been happening. Um, I want to come back to this at the end of the sermon this week, because I think the story we're going to look at which is a story many of you requested um, will, will help us maybe frame some thoughts around what, what, where we go, what do we do. Um, and so for those of you just joining us, we're in a series, Bible Stories for Grownups. We did one last fall with some stories from the Hebrew Bible, and we're looking at stories in the Synoptic Gospels this time. And that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, and the reason we're doing this is because for so many of us, we were taught story, Bible stories when we were young, when we were kids. And we just kind of grew up. And as we grew up, we learned all sorts of other things about things we'd been taught, right? We, we, we added to our knowledge and we changed our perspectives. And yet around these Bible stories, so often our interpretations and understandings were just frozen in time. So it leaves us to choose. Do I, like, do I reject everything I'm learning and everything science says? And every, do I reject all of that and cling to the Bible? Or do I have to reject the Bible so I can actually cling to what seems to be true in, in the world? And I don't think we have to choose. I actually think there are uh, there's a way of coming back to these stories and reading them through a grown-up lens that can help us to maybe reframe them and reappreciate them. And the story today is a strange one. <laughs> On the surface, it's a really strange one. Jesus curses a fig tree. Um, several of you asked for the story. And so just to kind of give you, before we have the reading of the story, we're going to go with Mark's version. It comes in Mark 11, 12 through 25. But before we get to Mark's version, just to let you know where this falls in the scope of the other Synoptic Gospels, Matthew and Luke. Matthew, it takes place. So in Mark, it takes place on Monday of, or on, yeah, on Monday of Holy Week. So leading up to the crucifixion. In Matthew, it takes place um, after the temple action. So the Mark story, it takes place, the, there's sort of the beginning of the story, Jesus does a thing in the temple, there's the end of the story. In Matthew, it's Jesus does a thing in the temple, then there's the fig tree story. And in Matthew's story, uh, Jesus curses the fig tree and it withers up right in front of them, like all at once. You'll see it's different in Mark. In Luke's, uh, it's, in Luke's gospel, it happens in chapter 13 in the form of a parable. It's not even 
uh, couched in this. And I think we can make an argument that this is maybe even in Mark and Matthew, a parable um, about Jesus, not a parable of Jesus, but about Jesus. But the story's not identical, but Luke has it earlier in his gospel. So um, let's pause here. Let's listen to the reading of the text, and then we'll jump into it. Hi, Grace Point. My name is Jasmine Bridgeforth, and our Bible story for today is found in Mark 11, 12 through 26. The next day, after leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. From far away, he noticed a fig tree and leaf, so he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing except leaves, since it wasn't the season for figs. So he said to it, no one will ever again eat your fruit. His disciples heard this. They came into Jerusalem. After entering the temple, he threw out those who were selling and buying there. He pushed over the tables used for currency exchange and the chairs of those who sold doves. He didn't allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. He taught them, hasn't it been written? My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have turned it into a hideout for crooks. The chief priests and legal experts heard this and tried to find a way to destroy him. They regarded him as dangerous because the whole crowd was enthralled at his teaching. When it was evening, Jesus and his disciples went outside the city. Early in the morning, as Jesus and his disciples were walking along, they saw the fig tree withered from the root up. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look how the fig tree you cursed has dried up. Jesus responded to them, have faith in God. I assure you that whoever says to this mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea and doesn't waver, but believes that what is said will really happen, it will happen. Therefore, I say to you, whatever you pray and ask for, believe that you will receive it and it will be so for you. And whenever you stand up to pray, if you have something against anyone, forgive so that your father in heaven may forgive you for your wrongdoings. All right. So this particular story, Jesus cursing the fig tree, it happens after the Palm Sunday protest slash peace march, which is what that was. And at the end of that Palm Sunday march, Jesus actually goes into the city and he goes into the temple and he looks around and surveys everything. And then he goes back out um, to where he was staying outside the city. And then he comes back on Monday morning to perform this action in the temple. And you'll notice that Mark begins the story. And Mark has this specific thing he does often in his gospel. He begins the story the curse, with the cursing of the fig tree. Then Jesus goes and performs this temple action. And then the next morning, as they're walking by the same fig tree, the disciples notice that the fig tree has withered. Now, this is a technique that Mark uses a lot and that scholars have names for it. My favorite names, name for this technique that scholars use is the Markin Sandwich. Um, and if I know this is right around brunch time, so that may make you hungry, but a Markin sandwich, I like to imagine it as like an Oreo cookie where you have the, the outside layers and then you have the inside layer, right? And that's what Mark does again and again and again. A story, he begins a story, that story gets interrupted with another story, and then that story that began everything comes to a conclusion. And so the way it looks in Mark 11 is there's the cursing of the fig tree in the verses 12 through 14. There's the temple action in verses 15 through 19, and then you have the conclusion of the story in 20 through 25. Now, what I find really interesting and what a lot of people have noticed, and I think the reason this story is so weird is because of the way um, it begins, which is Jesus comes to a fig tree and he's hungry and he goes over and he looks and he sees nothing except leaves. But then we get this parenthetical comment that it wasn't the season for figs. It wasn't the season for figs. 
Now, this is what makes the story especially strange for folks. I mean, if, if Jesus went over to a fig tree in season, there was no figs on the tree. You can see Jesus. Now, look, I get it. I love figs. I love figs. I, I think they're fantastic. You pair them with the right kind of like prosciutto and the right kind of cheese, and man, you are living right. But the, the reality is that it's not actually, it doesn't seem to be the fig tree's fault. Now, I, I spent a lot of time and went down a long rabbit trail to try to find a good reason for this. Like, what is the, what is a good reason that Jesus, that, that he, not that he would curse the fig tree, but this detail would be included. And what's interesting is if you read Matthew's account, even though Matthew does the story differently, um, this detail is omitted. It just says that he went over and he looked for figs. There was none. He cursed the tree. And so I, I hate to say it, but I, I don't know that there's a good reason for that. I don't know that, that it, it, it just something Mark chose to do. But Jesus curses the fig, tr- the fig tree because he couldn't find any figs. Then the next day when they come back, the fig tree is all dried up. And we're going to come back to that sort of that image of the fig tree and the fig tree withering. We'll come back to that in a bit. And I want to just focus on the thing that happens in the middle, because what often happens in these Markin sandwiches is that the the outside stories are interpreted, the outside sort of framing story is interpreted by whatever happens in the middle. So the, the middle action in this story, so the fig tree, the temple, the fig tree, the middle action gives us a window into what Jesus or what the writer of Mark was thinking by introducing this story. In the story of Jesus, he goes into the temple and he throws out those who are buying and selling. Um, and I've seen this, t- and I've heard this taught time and time again, that Jesus goes in there and he has a righteous anger and he just sort of throws like a holy temper tantrum in the temple. Now, here's the, here's the problem with that. Uh, that's not what Jesus does. This is a planned demonstration. Jesus goes into the temple on Sunday evening after the Palm Sunday Peace March. He surveys the situation. He goes out and he comes back on Monday morning with a plan. So I I don't doubt that Jesus had a sort of a holy anger about him, but this is not a temper tantrum. This is not Jesus going into the temple and rashly deciding to tear everything up and turn everything over. This is Jesus embodying the Hebrew prophets, right? If you were to read the stories of the Hebrew Hebrew prophets, they regularly use this kind of guerrilla theater to convey their message. It was a pretty common thing. They would like take on actual demonstrations physically, like the prophet Jeremiah, who we're going to hear a lot about today, um, he, he wore some like some some stocks around to, to foretell the captivity of the people. You had one prophet who walked around naked for three years. I believe you have another prophet, a guy named Ezekiel, who cooked his uh, bread over human excrement to make a point. And if you're interested in that point, that, that's maybe another Bible story for another time. But let's talk about the point of this section. What might Jesus be doing in the temple? Why would he go in and, and turn over the money changers tables and release the animal? Like, why would Jesus do this? And, and I want to dispel another common misconception of the story. Jesus doesn't do this because selling the, the selling of the sacrificial animals and the changing of money was a problem. They weren't wrong. Um, the, the problem wasn't that things were being bought and sold in the temple. Now, as a kid in the Freel Baptist Church, before we became liberal Southern Baptists, we uh, actually took this pretty literally in the sense, that interpretation pretty literally, literally and said, you're not allowed to sell anything in the church. And I can remember as a kid when some like a singing group would, uh, had come to the church and they wanted to set up a table with their cassette tapes um, and all, you know, their 
I guess glossy, I don't know how that worked back in the 80s, but they wanted to set all that up in the church, and they weren't allowed. It was almost a deal breaker, but they ended up setting it up right in front of the front door of the church, which somehow made it okay. It wasn't like in the church, um, but that's just an unfortunate misunderstanding and mis- misinterpretation. Actually, the people selling sacrificial animals and the money changers were necessary because you could only pay the temple tax with one coin. Uh, There was only one coin accepted. And so pilgrims coming from all over the the Jewish diaspora, from all over the world, wouldn't have had ready access to that coin. And so they come bringing money from wherever they're from, coins from where they're from, and they change them to be able to pay the temple tax. The same thing with sacrificial animals. When you're coming to the temple for Passover and you have to bring an unblemished, spotless lamb for uh, for this event, I mean, if you're traveling from far away, what are the odds that something happens to that animal, that it gets blemished, that it gets hurt, that it gets eaten by an animal, or that whatever could possibly happen. So these folks are serving an actual service. It isn't that Jesus is angry that these people are in place. They're actually in place doing the thing they were supposed to be doing, their necessary services. What Jesus does, though, by going in and flipping over their tables and running them out, is he stops the activity of the temple. It's hard to sacrifice when you have no sacrificial animals. It's hard to pay the tax when the people who change coins are no longer in their positions. He goes into the temple. He stops the activity. And I don't think we should imagine this being maybe a really long stoppage. I think this is probably very, again, this is a prophetic demonstration. But he shuts, symbolically even, shuts the temple activity down. But why would he want to do that? And at first, I want to give a disclaimer. I will give this disclaimer every time we're talking about something in relation to Jesus and Judaism. And that is we must resist interpretations of these stories, just like this one, that often are grounded in anti-Semitism. Even people who don't think they're maybe um, engaging in that, the way we sort of read these stories, which is Jesus versus Judaism, Jesus versus the Jewish people. That's not what's happening. Jesus was Jewish. And he's not against his tradition or his own people. And any reading or interpretation of Jesus that pits Jesus against Judaism is a bad interpretation of Jesus. Jesus is protesting, not Judaism. Jesus is protesting the temple leadership. The temple authorities had become participants in what often scholars call the domination system. So the Roman Empire was a domination system. They, they came in and they oppressed and they dominated And they would often look for people in power in the place they were dominating to sort of collaborate with them and make everything go smoother. So that means a small percentage of the temple authority, a very small percentage of the temple authorities and the people that their retainers and the people they had around them would benefit from the oppression of the vast majority of the people. Marcus Borg said this, in all these stories, do not hear an indictment of Judaism. Judaism was not the problem. The problem was the imperial captivity of the temple and its authorities collaboration with the empire. So what Jesus is protesting isn't Judaism. It isn't his tradition. It isn't his people. He is protesting a group, a small group of people who are collaborating with the Roman empire and it's affecting, it's dramatically and deeply affecting his homeland. And while he goes in, after he's turning all these tables over and he says, Hasn't it been written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you've turned it into a hideout 
for crooks. And of course, Jesus is quoting the Hebrew scriptures here. He's quoting the book of Isaiah in the first about the prayer for the nations. And then he quotes Jeremiah about the hideout for crooks. And I think some context will matter here because uh, it'll give shape to maybe what Jesus is doing. So Jeremiah was a prophet who lived and prophesied and worked around the time of the Babylonian uh, destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. Um, and what Jeremiah did is he warned the people of, uh, of uh, Judah at the time. He warned them against violent rebellion against Babylon because he, he told them, if you rebel violently against Babylon, it is going to go bad for us. They revolted violently against Babylon and it went bad for them. The Jewish temple was torn. The first temple was razed to the ground. The majority of the population was uh, taken off into exile. Right, so, so Jesus is quoting Jeremiah. And he's quoting from a specific part of Jeremiah where Jeremiah was told by God to go stand in the temple, the place of power, because the temple, it's like the national bank, but it's also a place of religious significance and it's a place of social significance and a, it's a, a place of political. So it's essentially like all the things we try to tease out and separate in our world. The temple is all of them brought together into one. And Jeremiah goes into that spot, and essentially in chapter 7, Jeremiah warns those in powers that they can't act unjustly toward the immigrant, the poor, the widow, the orphan, and then claim the temple as a safe refuge. Essentially, whatever we do out there doesn't matter because God will never let anything happen to this temple. This is God's house. And they had this saying where they would say, oh, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Like, nothing can get us in here. We are safe because God would never let a thing happen to this temple. And Jeremiah, speaking for God to, to these uh, people in power, calls the temple a what many translations call a den of robbers, what this translation calls, CEB calls, a hideout for crooks. What's interesting is the literal Greek word used there in Mark is lestes. And lestes is the same word used to describe the two people who were crucified on either side of Jesus. It's better translated like a bandit or maybe even more pointedly an insurrectionist. Right? So, so just keep that in your mind. Jeremiah, Jesus is quoting from Jeremiah where Jeremiah is warning that violent rebellion is going to lead to trouble and that the temple is not a hideout for those doing unjust things and violent things to other people. So what is Jesus doing in the temple? This is a prophetic judgment of the temple. Jesus is warning that the same fate awaits them in this temple that awaited uh, that, that happened in uh, Jeremiah's day. The, the same fate awaits this institution as the first temple and the first temple authorities. Like Jeremiah, he is warning that God will not abide God's temple becoming a place that uses worship to mask injustice and oppression. Listen to these words from Morgan Cross in the last week. God is a God of justice and righteousness. And when worship substitutes for justice, God rejects God's temple or for us today, God's church. Think about those words. Oh, and there's, they're just echoes of Amos here. Because, I mean, Jesus is immersed in the Hebrew prophets. He is one. And so he's immersed in this tradition. And we can hear Amos when Amos calls, <laughs> speaks for God and calls uh, essentially worship that substitutes for justice as just being vile and disgusting and something God wants nothing to do with. God actually, at one point, Amos says that God speaking for God, get, take away the noise of your music. Let justice roll like a river. Now for Mark's context in around the year 70, when actually this very fate happened to the temple, when 
um, the, the uh, Jewish uh, leaders rebelled and Rome came to town and destroyed the temple. So this would have had a, this would, this was been acutely aware in Mark's day of this story. Um, and it would have a further meaning because the revolutionaries who led the rebellion, which began in the late sixties that culminated in the destruction of the temple in 70, um, they actually had taken over the temple at one point. And there's a spot at the temple, which is where Jesus performed his action called the court of the Gentiles. And that was the furthest, like the, the furthest in a Gentile could go into the temple complex. And so it was a place that really would have been a house of prayer for the nations because anybody could come in there and participate in, in, um, in, in worship if they wanted to. And so in, during the revolution in six, the 60s and early 70s, they stopped that. The, the Jewish revolutionaries stopped allowing people to come in and, and, and pray. And they actually were using the temple as sort of their hideout. So they would go out and carry out these actions against Rome. They would commit these violent acts. And then they would come back to the temple and believe that the temple would protect them. Right? So when, when in 70, when, when they heard these words from Jesus, you've made my house, it was supposed to be a house of prayer for the nations, but you've made it a den of revolutionaries. You've made it a den of insurrectionists. You can imagine how that would have heard. I mean, Mark is using Jesus' critique of his context. Mark is sort of using that to critique his own context as well, which takes us back to the fig tree. The fig tree was often used by the prophets to symbolize Israel. Jeremiah wrote about the Lord at one point. The Lord wanted to gather the Lord's people, but there were no grapes on the vine and there were no figs on the fig tree and even the leaves of the fig tree had withered up. And throughout the prophets, this image of Israel as a fig tree and the danger of the fig tree drying up comes up again and again. If you take these events together, the cursing of the fig tree is actually Jesus' warning about the direction things are headed. I think it's a prophetic action, both in the temple and with the fig tree, that warns against the consequence of not bearing the fruit of justice and compassion. And this may be hard to believe, but for so many in Jesus' day, they went looking to the fig tree for justice, and they found nothing but leaves. And Jesus even goes on later in the story to talk about this, you know, have faith in God. If you call for this mountain to be removed, right? He's talking, he's talking about the temple mount. He's talking about like, this is, this is, this is real deal stuff for he and his disciples. And anytime I, I read one of these stories, I always make that sort of like, let's under, try to understand it in its context. But then what do we do with a story like this? Do we know anything today about people who are looking for justice and compassion, but instead they're being disappointed? Think about what's happened just in the last week in terms of racism and gun violence. Dante Wright, killed by police. Adam Toledo, killed by police. A white army sergeant who assaulted a young black man walking through his neighborhood in South Carolina, I believe. A FedEx mass shooting. God is perhaps saying, I want justice and not lip service. Away with your thoughts and prayers. America is a country that is currently uh, practicing human sacrifice. We're practicing child sacrifice. And we need a Jesus who will come in and flip over tables and call it what it is. Drive out the gun sellers. Call police, police brutality the evil that it is. Call our addiction to guns and violence the evil that it is. And if you've been watching the news, you know that right now in our country, transphobia is running rampant. 
trans kids are being not just marginalized, but cruelly persecuted by state governments all over this country. And we need a Jesus that calls that injustice what it is and turns over those tables to make space for all of God's kids who are being left out. We think about the church. We think about people who are looking to be included in community. And instead, everything gets turned into a theological litmus test intended to exclude those who won't fall into line. Did you know this church attendance is now below a majority, below 50% for the first time, apparently, like maybe in American history? And can I just say, it may sound terrible, can I make a confession? Because this is not going to get out on the internet. Um, When I first read that survey, my first response was, man, this is a sign of hope. Right? People are bailing out on an institution that has failed them. People are bailing out on an institution that is dehumanizing them. People are bailing out on an institution that far too long in this country has supported white supremacy. They're bailing out on an institution that has baptized wars. They're bailing out on an institution that has defended people treating and owning other people in any way that they wish. They're bailing out on an institution that is rampant with abuse and doesn't want to own up to it. People are bailing out of an institution that has wounded and hurt them. Doesn't mean they're bailing out on spirituality. Doesn't mean they're bailing out on God. And if they were, I mean, my goodness, how could we blame them? How could we blame them? People have been looking at the fruit of the Christian faith, the Christian church, I should say. And they were expecting to find justice and compassion and boundary transcending, boundary breaking love. And instead, they're only finding leaves and trauma and exclusion and pain. And I just, I said this to somebody the other day, and I want to say it here. At Grace Point, we take so seriously, so seriously that many of you are trusting us with your one last shot for church. You're giving it one last chance, and you're giving it a chance here. And my hope and prayer and my work and the work our leadership is doing, the the work we're about, we want to make sure that when you come looking for figs on this tree, you find figs, that you find compassion, that you find inclusion, that you find that boundary transcending love, that you find that you have had a space at the table all along, that you are more than welcome, that you are affirmed, Not not just by us, but you are affirmed by God. My hope and prayer is that that is what you find here, an abundance of figs, that you find a church on the, that is pursuing on the heels of justice, that you find a church that doesn't just want to meet together and gather together to do our thing, but we actually want what happens in this place as we gather together, in this place, right, on the internet, um, as, we, as we gather in this space together that we are all being empowered and equipped to then go work for meaningful change in the world, right? Our hope and mission and commitment isn't just that Grace Point would put on a good gathering and be a good experience and we'd enjoy it and that it would be meaningful. And we, we want to do all that and we love all that, but it's that we really would be a community empowered to experience together and to pursue justice and to live compassionately. And that when we do that, when we make that choice together, to be that kind of community, not the community that just does kind of church, but the community that seeks to actually embody the goodness of this gospel in the world. 
my hope is that we'll bring a little more light, a little more healing, and a little more hope to the world than existed yesterday. And my God, the world needs it so desperately. And you and I and we, we get to do this together. Thank you.